HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Danone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste. Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on, maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode of Soul by Todd Richards, I'm really uh, excited to have a person that is dear to me, uh, probably knows me better than anyone else. We came up in kitchens together uh, starting probably about 93, 94 at the Occidental Hotel, which is now the Four Seasons Hotel here in Atlanta. Uh, he is known as many different names. He's known as Chef Dwayne Nutter. He's known as the Mad Chef. He was also a chef on the Peanut uh, Tour. Uh, you can't be a better name than having having the peanut tour for the chef last name of Nutter, as well as he uh, has a wonderful restaurant down in Mobile, Alabama. Still too damn far away from me because I don't get to see him as often as I want. He changed that to still smoking and doing some barbecue down there as well with Reggie Washington, of course. Uh, we did One Food South together. Uh, man, the list goes on and on how many how many years of cooking on and off we've done. But I'm just very proud to have uh, on Soul uh, Chef Dwayne Nutter. Welcome to Soul by Todd Richards. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, uh, so we started cooking together, what, 93? 90, 94, somewhere? Yeah, 94, 94, right before the Olympics, right? Man, that was mm -hmm. a crazy, crazy time. 
And uh, for, uh, fortunately, uh, you know, sometime last week, one of our comrades, Chef Daryl Schuler, came in. And if anyone doesn't know who Daryl Schuler is, he's the uh, first certified master chef uh, African American heritage to ever accomplish that task. But just tell them about that lineup of people we had in that kitchen at one time at the Four Seasons Hotel. Oh, yeah. I mean, Daryl would come in every now and then, uh, Schuler, because he was working at Villa Christina. He was the mm -hmm. banquet chef at the time. And then we had uh, Scotty Dangerfield. It was Florencia, was that fine dining restaurant there. Right. We had Troy. He was in the, uh, he was in the, he was the banquet chef. He used to work with uh, Patrick Clark and stuff. Um, man. <laughs> All right. Of course, there was, there was you. And then right. there was, uh, and then there was me. And then there was uh, Chef Evans, of course, uh, the one who brought us all together. You know, wow. just thinking about Chef Evans, I mean, think about it. He was the first, uh, I mean, African-American chef to have, a, was it four gold medals, one silver, if I remember correctly, at the culinary. Uh, yeah. yeah, first person to get a perfect score. Period. Oh, perfect score, right, damn. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's crazy, right? And, and no one really <laughs> even knows that story, um, that he was the first person to get a perfect score. Uh, in the Culinary yeah. Olympics. I mean, talking about black excellence, I mean, that's that's crazy, crazy by itself. And you started in the Garmage kitchen, and most people, if they don't know what the Garmage kitchen is, that's really where most of the cold food for a hotel, that's where most of the cold food is prepared. So you think about a buffet where you have the fruit displays, smoked salmon displays, all that in the buffet, or if you have in-room dining, uh, that's where a lot of that food is displayed. So Dee, tell me, you started in that, in that kitchen. Uh, what was it about that Garmage kitchen that really started you on your path? I think I probably had the patience for it. I think that's what Chef identified me as. You know, you know, it's you know, being in the kitchen is kind of like being a sailor anyway, and all those different personalities. And it kind of my thing was I was always good with taking my time, mm -hmm. and I found the, the challenge of uh, trying to make something cold taste good as it, it would if it was hot. I mean, most people don't think that, you know, cold food is good. But you think about all the uh, the memes that go out about about bad potato salad and potato salad <laughs> definitely is cold, you know, and, and you and you were essentially responsible for ensuring that all cold food tastes really well. I mean, how did you develop that 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 sense of of, of cooking uh, that style of food? And it was really like a trial and error because I didn't know I was good at it. It's something that a mentor would identify in a mentee, right? So I wanted to hang out with you guys and click tongs and hang out in the fire and throw <laughs> pans around. And and it was like, man, I ain't got time to be peeling no fruit and making the grapes look like a blueberry grew out of the grape and decorating <laughs> and laying the fruit perfectly straight for the amenities because the president's coming in and you got to have the fruit basket look a certain way. Wow. You know, that's a whole whole different discipline. But in that discipline, you just bring up something interesting that most people, you know, we talk about naturally as chefs, but most people, you know, we say that people eat with their eyes first. And, yeah. you know, you didn't even cook items, but you still make them look, you know, so tantalizing and everything, you know? I mean, did that art come from, you know, cooking with, with your mom? Does that come from no, your background I, of Seattle? I, no, I think it's probably, I think it's because I'm dyslexic, to be mm. honest with you. Mm. Uh, you know, the ability to see things before they're done, uh, seeing stuff in three dimensions, 
because you know you, you had to learn to read and write totally different than everybody else. So everything I did was a little bit weird and or normal abnormal to the average person in their learning process. So, you know, seeing colors and shapes, you know, before you execute them so I could see a finished thing in my head before I started it. I think that's what helped me out with that particular situation. But let's go back to that, you know, um, not only to the dyslexia, uh, which is something that most people don't want to talk about. Uh, but also, you know, you growing up in Seattle, uh, because I know you, you, your mom took you there to, to help uh, you learn how to overcome uh, being dyslexic. How was it being, you know, and, you know, I'm not saying anything that most people may not know, that you're 6'6", you're a tall guy then, you're a tall guy now. <laughs> uh, and of course, you're African-American growing up in Seattle. What was the difference between growing up in Seattle uh, and then growing up in, in Morgan City, Louisiana? Oh, it was it was huge culture shock. I went from, you know, where I was in uh, Louisiana, the on one side of train track was literally all the black folks and Italians. And then I moved to Seattle and I can't find no black folks except for wow. my relatives. So it was, uh, and then of course I'm, I'm from Louisiana, so I don't talk like the people in. So that was a, a good adjustment. That was a good two years of being made fun of because of my Southern accent. I mean, so now you're tall, um, they're making fun of you, but you, are, are a person that's you know grew up by water and certain Seattle is definitely by the water. Uh, oh, is there yeah. any relations to the foods that you cook now uh, in your experience uh, of growing up in both Louisiana and Seattle? Uh, a little bit. I try to combine the two. You know, I mean, we cook totally different in the Gulf, but just like you say, you, we still have access to seafood where we have grouper and snapper down here, you know, halibut's running wild and salmon's running all over the place. So a lot of similarities in the abundance of uh, the amount of seafood you can get. You know? But uh, yeah, I just kind of had fun with it, trying to put my two coasts together. Did you find any common ground in, in the seafood? I mean, because definitely you had some cultural differences that you were facing as as a kid, I mean, and as your mom, you know, bringing you up there, like you said, not only are you facing cultural dis, uh, differences just uh, from a food standpoint, but visually you're having cultural differences, and you also, ha you know, were, you know, facing overcoming uh, dyslexia. Was there any common ground in even in the taste of food from Seattle to Louisiana? Uh, no, not really, because of. We had like a pocket of um, people, you know, African-Americans that had migrated up there. You know, I had a lot of family that went to California and a lot of part of my family went to Seattle. And we went to Seattle because of the school districts and stuff that could identify what dyslexia was. So, but then with that being said, you still had your home base. I mean, so, you know, what was coming in the mail? We was getting grits mailed to us before they was even available on the shelf. You know, wow. uh, <laughs> you know, oh, call up crazy. your uncle. I mean, <laughs> they're throwing some dry ice, and we like send a box, and you know, and then here it comes in the mail. You got almost a case of grits and some uh, some uh, some beans from 
you know who makes the best beans in the South. Some mm-hmm. red beans with that little red rose on the on the package. You know that before yeah. that was available up north, that was coming in the mail. <laughs> wow! So 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 relative. you all got you know drop shipments of, of, of food from the South. So you, you you were homesick, but never really totally just homesick. Totally from the gone, food. right? Yeah. I mean wow. the, the salmon the salmon yeah. cakes end up tasting better because I had never had a salmon cake with fresh salmon before. So that was kind of like, oh yeah, I like this. You know, I mean, back it, down down here we always do it in uh, with canned salmon. It's just interesting though that that you know during what year this had to be in the late seventies, early eighties when you yeah early eighties yeah. yeah I think I was about seven or eight years old when I moved to Seattle so it was like eighty two. So that even in you know that period of time, there was some innovation happening uh, in your household to get the foods from you know from definitely from you know hours away, uh, you know, either by flights and driving would be days away, that you all had innovation, you know, or, or initiative enough to, to still have a home base uh, through the foods that you all ate. Uh, yeah. And who did most of the cooking? Did your mom? I never hear stories about Roz doing any cooking. Did she do most oh, of the yes. cooking? Oh, yes. <laughs> Roz did most of the cooking all um, the time. She she make rice and gravy so fast, everybody can eat. Wow. So make that a little $10 stretch. I know that's right. I, I remember you always telling the story that you uh, went to culinary school. Um, and, uh-oh, sounds like you guys are, are chopping at work. You guys back there chopping away. Oh, yeah, dishwasher <laughs> just got here. He's starting, uh, he's starting to get his garbage cans together. Uh, I understand. Hey, you know, always, all, you know, chefs are always working. Uh, but, you know, there was a story that you, you tell uh, really well about going to culinary school and learning, you know, that, you know, what these fancy French terms were for food, um, oh, you know, was the same thing that your mom was making at home. Tell, tell us that story about, I think it was gravy you were talking about or something like Coco uh, Van. I think it was, or, uh, you know, tell, yeah, tell us the story. Yeah, I think it was Coco Van story. It was, you know, we had our, our classes and you got your French cookbook and you got to learn all this stuff. And it's kind of intimidating because you been cooking at home. I was just wanting to think, oh, man, I'm going to be a chef one day. You know, you're what you're 18. Stuff's starting to get hard because you can't pronounce these words. You've never seen letters put together like that. And uh, then you start getting to the technique. And this is when I started to realize that, oh, there's a common thread throughout the world. It's just everybody's just calling it something different. You got to have fire. Mm. Food and somebody who's hungry. Right. <laughs> I mean, you break it down that way. <laughs> now everybody, now everybody got different names for stuff. That's when it starts getting intimidating. I, I know that that you know, with my dad's family coming out of there too, that rice culture um, was was big for my dad. And but you said you guys sent grits up there and beans. That, what about rice mm. culture? You know, because I don't think you and I have ever even talked about rice. Uh, in, well, yeah, in, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, you know, rice is one of those things you always take for granted until you start doing this for a living. And mm. yeah, there was mm-hmm. rice in that box too, because like this rice don't come out like the rice at home. <laughs> so it's right. like a whole Louisiana rice thing, and then and then knowing that. As I got older, that some of the rice patties doubled as the place they would raise crawfish. It was like, oh, okay, we got we got some cross-utilization going on here that might have an effect on how this rice might taste. 
I mean, that definitely makes sense. I mean, salinity from it, you know, makes sense. Uh, definitely when you get into things like gumbo and, and, and jambalaya, uh, etouffee, all those things come from that, that region. Or then you get to, to the Seattle area and you have this big Asian influence with rice culture also, you know, up there. There's still a lot of similarities in just, in cooking rice. And I know both of our backgrounds really get into the technique that no matter what the rice is, it can only absorb so much water. You can only put so much water in, in, in right. that rice in order to make it make it good. And the texture, of course, is the most important thing uh, in cooking rice. Let, let me pivot just a little bit uh, to oh, there's uh, that uh, word again, uh, you know, pivot, you know, <laughs> That's what we used to do when we played basketball. You used to get in that drop step and, and, and to do that pivot and, and take them straight to the straight to the hoop, you know? Uh, so, so you came, you know, to Atlanta. I know you drove through Chicago to get there because I, I know the club that you went to because I used to DJ in that club, you know? Oh. <laughs> you know, that you went to before you came down. Uh, we worked with Chef Evans and, and, and you know, and I believe we, we were with him all the way from 94 to 2001, which is a, a long stretch. Uh, to be yeah. with one one chef, and then you went on the peanut tour. Um, you know, and, and most people may may not know this, but but you are a comedian by by nature. I think you're a chef uh, by by trade, but you're more a comedian by nature. Uh, yeah, where did yeah, that comedian? Where did that comedic influence come from? I want to say maybe Fozzie Bear. I don't know. Um, <laughs> might be genetic. I heard my dad was. Uh, before he passed, he was really silly you know, mm. growing up. Um, my grandmother on my father's side had a smart mouth just like me. And I think I just kind of took it to the next level on my days off. Because when we worked together, mostly I was the AM sous chef and you was the chef de cuisine. So yeah, I was taking yeah. care of all That's the stuff. That's what most people don't understand. Yeah, thank you for explaining it. Yeah, most people don't understand. AM Sue usually comes in early in the morning to get all those things done. The chef de cuisine is basically responsible for all the services, uh, mostly a little bit late lunch and, and, and definitely through dinner. Go, go, go ahead, Dean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then so I remember um, back when Jamie Foxx had the last Palooza in Atlanta, I was, you guys would come in early for me and I'd be going to all these auditions because yeah. I was uh, doing stand up at night and uh, cooking during the day. And how many comedians? I mean, you think about Atlanta uh, comedians, Earthquake. Um, you know, mm. you, you used to perform here all the time, Bruce. Bruce. Who? I mean, who's 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 your favorite comedian to, to just to listen to? You know, all all time. Well, a couple of them. Give us a couple of them. Who am I listening to now? Well, you know, I was I was rocking me some Amy Schumer before she had the baby. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what she sound like now. I haven't tracked her down. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know if you saw her and her husband about to have a Food Network show. That's going to be funny. Okay. I'm sure. Um, uh, who else is... Uh, you know, I've been playing some old Eddie Murphy because I've been trying to get my uh, my mojo back. Mm -hmm. Since I got a little time on my hand and uh, hit me a few open mics because I'm working during the day now. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I mean, certainly working through the day in this COVID environment, uh, you know, it takes you some, you know, away from normal restaurant operations. Uh, what we're going to do and pick up after the break, we're going to talk about uh, COVID environment and as well as we're going to talk about the state of 
inequality and solutions for uh, equality in restaurants once we come back. Uh, you're listening to Soul by Todd Richards. Every time your customers eat and drink, they vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, to know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. Danone North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But Danone North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better-for-your-business products. They bring their B Corp certification to life, in ways that protect the environment and communities by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. We're back with Soul by Todd Richards uh, with Chef Dwayne Nutter, uh, who's down in Mobile, uh, Alabama. Uh, still an Atlanta guy, though. I mean, I, I just saw him this past weekend. Uh, we're close to Labor Day to give reference. And, and, and Dwayne, you know, we're going to pick up, you know, we were talking about your comedy and your comedic career and how you still is shown. Uh, but one reason why I really wanted to talk to you, especially in this COVID environment, uh, is that you had to switch your restaurant from Southern National uh, to uh, a still smoking, which is a concept that you and Reggie Washington put together, which is a barbecue concept. And just tell us, you know, how and why you decided to change the restaurant into, you know, a, a different version of Southern National focusing on barbecue. Well, yeah, it's more of a, it's a barbecue cafe-ish uh, the, the main thing was nobody wanted to come back to work. It was one of those scenarios where, like, what could I do with three employees? Mm. Right. I mean, so, so you're saying that you had trouble for employees to come back to work? Right. So, okay. Okay. I just want to make sure I understood that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it, we had, I had that situation. Uh, I'm in a small town. Um, my business here is a direct correlation with how much out-of-town business we had. Sounds strange, but if flights were down, there was nobody in the city conducting business, uh, you know, there was no traffic downtown mobile. Okay. A lot of business being conducted, a lot of traffic downtown mobile. So there's no flights. There's no business. Uh, and also we have... Uh, Last summer, we started because I'm so close to the beach down here. It's like a mm-hmm. reverse beach town. But most chefs don't don't know a summer house is a second thing either. Yeah, you yeah. Know? I, didn't <laughs> I didn't know that that's, you know, when it gets hot, I live on the beach. And then when it gets cold, I live on my house that's closer to the city. Okay. Well, you know, 
I've seen that in the movies, but I didn't think I was going to encounter that here in Mobile. Okay. <laughs> it so uh, it was like, again, it was similar to the airport. It was like, dang, we get, you know, when we was at the airport, we were busy when most people were slow and slow when most people were busy. And it was kind of like, oh, I got to learn this whole thing over again. I mean, but your restaurant has only been open for a couple of years. I mean, really, so you had to, in the middle of this COVID environment, literally, op- you opened a restaurant prior to COVID. And now mm-hmm. are essentially taking that same restaurant and making it into an entirely new restaurant. Um, right. It, it didn't seem like too much of a stretch because last what we did last summer, when it was so slow, because the other thing I forgot to mention was football. I mean, if you know anything about Alabama football, Frank Stitt has no business when there's a football game. Nobody has wow. any business with it. So that's a whole other dynamic that if it's football, if it was a football game on, there'd be three people in your restaurant. And we're talking about college by. football, in, in particularly with Alabama, Auburn, uh, even Alabama, um, uh, UAB, all those uh, really affecting your, your business on a Saturday when most restaurants normally will be busy. Um, you were actually slower because of, of football in Alabama, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I remember you called me one time, and you was like, man, I forgot you might be busy. I said, nah, man, Alabama playing LSU, ain't nothing happen. Oh. I, mean, I mean, and so you, you're pivoting all the time. It's like you're changing up things all the time. Is it, is it survival? Is it? Just business. I mean, what does it do to the psyche? Not only as a chef. I mean, I mean, as a business owner, it does something to the psyche. But then, to me, it seems like it kind of stymies the creativity as well Uh, as being a chef. Yeah, it's all of those things in one, and it's trying to figure out how to deal with them, trying to minimize them because it's it's ridiculous. You really have no idea what are you supposed to be doing. But I look at, you know, you guys, uh, you know, Instagram uh, and, and all that. I see the reviews uh, because, I, you know, I'm, I'm nosy like that. I just want to see what everyone else is doing and making sure that everyone is still surviving. But I, I also mm-hmm. see that you even incorporated, you know, now pizzas. And so you, like you said, you are a true cafe in that area. You're supplying pizzas to a brewery. Uh, now you're doing all these things to survive in this COVID environment. Uh, but, you know, sooner or later, this environment is going to be over. Uh, yeah, what do I mean, you want to have on the, on the other side of it? Well, I guess it's just, you know, the people that's kind of making it is, are the people who have understanding landlords at the end of the day. Um, because this that fifty percent capacity, this this the restaurant model don't run like that. If you got a hundred seats, that is not how. If you're, you know, you're doing your budget at, you know, you're supposed to get sixty five dollars a seat, one and a half turns, and you start breaking down how the business of the restaurant operates. The stuff that's they're talking about implements implementing does not create a healthy environment. There's no way it can sustain itself. I mean, so you think about it from a standpoint that restaurants, you know, at the, if you're doing 10, 12% uh, uh, or 10 cents on every dollar is going to profit, you're doing exceptionally well. And you're saying at this point, 
you know, just breaking even um, would still be 65 covers. So certainly uh, from a labor standpoint, you having people not show up to work as well as, you know, the model for people coming in and dining is a challenge of its own in order for you all to continue to survive. Uh, how long do you, you know, keep changing up the model until until you say, well, maybe it's time to do something different? Or do you, you know, keep doing what Chef Evans always taught us was, is how to have perseverance and, and make these things happen in order to feed our families? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Are you going to, do you want to make this thing happen? Or are you going to say, well, it's time to go do something else. It ain't going to happen. Call me back when everything, when you find a cure. I mean, some of the high-end places, it's like, put the tweezers up and shut the doors. And, uh, you know, people like Brent, who's who found a niche, got the home kits. You know, it's, it's just a lot of regional. I mean, how people are going to eat what you produce. Mm -hmm. Figuring out what they want. Because what Brent doing in Chicago won't work here. I mean, definitely it won't work there. I'm referring to, you know, Grant Akis, you know, chef of Alenia in, in, in Chicago. Let me, t you know, let's talk about something, you know, inside of this as, as, as well. And, you know, you and I have had this conversation probably since we first met. Uh, chef Evans had to deal with it. Uh, and, and, and no disparity in, in, in talking about uh, this scenario that took place at the Four Seasons Hotel. But we were doing a charity event. A, a world-famous uh, chef came in and walked up to the Garmage chef, who was a, a white gentleman, and uh, <laughs> greeted him as he was the executive chef. And then uh, he had to proceed and, and inform the the chef and his entire entourage, and there was an entourage that uh, Chef Evans was actually the executive chef of the hotel. Uh, and from that point in 19, uh, we had to, that was probably right before the Olympics, so it had to be 1995. And here we are in 2020, and we're, you know, talking about some of the same things. Where have you seen the change happen for the better uh, in, in black chef relations as it comes to uh, equality and restaurants across the board? Uh, it seems like the, the young bucks, the 30-year-old new chefs come up behind us there. They're getting the press that they deserve, slowly but surely. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the, the main thing I'm starting to see. Uh, there's still a disparity with, you know, getting financing uh, in, in the black community versus anybody else. But, you know, that's starting to change as these uh, millennials start even opening up their own capital raising firms and stuff. So it's like a, I'm sure we're going to be retired drinking some matcha, sitting in a rocking chair going, look at all these Brown folks getting <laughs> I mean, when you think about the, uh, you know, the Water Jordan, you know, of the world, uh, Michelle Bailey, mm -hmm. Nina Compton, who are not that much, you know, younger than, than than we are, and then you get to, you know, a generation maybe after them, you know, the Kirk Cooks you see online, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the Omars you see online, the JJ Johnsons, um, oh, you're up there, you know, uh, that you, and I remember JJ see. coming into the airport all the time, right, right. <laughs> 
But there seems to be that there's some recognition there. But in this COVID environment, it seems like there's recognition, but there is no solution uh, being talked about in order how to overcome uh, the financial part that you brought up of gentrification still, because that's what's going to take place when all these restaurants close. Or, you know, how to make sure that the PPP money was given to the right people in the right community, as well as, you know, there's no systematic plan to have this moving forward. You know, what can we do to contribute or at least start a plan in order to make these things uh, happen so that everything that you and I fought for in the generation before us of, you know, the Daryl uh, Evans uh, even Shular put him in that, the Patrick Clarks of the world, uh, the Kevin Mitchells, uh, the Nicole Taylors, who, you know, who's a wonderful food writer. All these things that people are fought for uh, are, and continue to fight for, Jessica Harris. Uh, what things do we need to start doing in order to make sure that this does not just go by the wayside? Wow, man, that's a, that's a lot to unpack. Well, we, well, let's, well, let's just do some, something tangible, you know, one or two things. And, and, you know, tangible thing could be easily we're already supporting each other. We support each other on social media. Right. Uh, you know, we talk to each other all, all the time. But as, a, as an industry as a whole, I know, like, supporting each other is a huge thing to make your community stronger. Mm -hmm. So we have a voice. But then there's that whole, I mean, this whole restaurant system was built off of slavery. So, I mean, that's going to take legislation. Like, we, you know, you're going to have to create a lobby system. To, how are you going to change this environment? You know, some of the naive servers or cooks may think the owner's taking all this money and they need to do health insurance. It's like, actually, if you saw the numbers, the government need to give us health insurance so we can have more damn money to give to the employees. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, who's gonna pay thirty dollars for a burger? So you start getting into that. I mean, the whole tip system was started because owners didn't want to pay African Americans who were former slaves money. So what happens forty, fifty, sixty years later? We have this restaurant system that's still operating off of the backs of that. That whole situation has to change. To like move the entire industry in the right direction. So what I hear, and you said a lot, just pointing out one thing. But I mean, when I really hear you unpack uh, what you're stating, is that there needs to be that that well, the same systematic uh, ways of inequality, including sexism and racism, that this country was found for from in the negative sense. Uh, has perpetrated itself in the restaurant business. And until we fix those things, we will not be able to have a uh, equitable table moving forward. Uh, how do we come together in, in solving that? You say it's legislation, uh, you know, are, you know, do we as chefs need to start running for Congress? Uh, do we need to <laughs> work with Congress people? And, you know, how do we, how do we overcome this? Yeah, you're right. The the first step was, would be trying to work with some Congress folks to kind of, you're going to have to beat your drum. And this is, I mean, it took this long to get this messed up. How long do you think it's going to take to get fixed? So now we, we're starting to identify the problem. 
So now we got to go into fixing the problem mode. And a lot of us are hoping that the way they treat this whole scenario with the PPP money or the or the restaurant, uh, the act, you know, there's some people in Congress who actually work at restaurants and understand like, yeah, this is serious. And there's a lot of congressmen who are completely oblivious to what goes on and how many people restaurants affect and businesses that we affect. You know, I look at it, uh, so and, I and certainly, I, you know, I, I, I had Mashama um, Bailey on um, as as well at one point in time, and we talked about her winning the the, the James Beard Award. And uh, when we were talking about it, she wanted to talk about it, but she also wanted to talk about the George Floyds of the world, the Breonna Taylors of the world, and, and things like that. And are winning awards really, uh, are they almost becoming gratuitous uh, to our community uh, moving, moving forward? Or uh, another question would be is when do we actually have our own awards uh, to start celebrating ourselves in a different light and platform? Yeah. That's going to have to take some eager young people. <laughs> Some eager young people. Well, we do a D. We, we, we first of all, we're not that old, okay? So, quick say <laughs> young people, as if, as if, you know, and, and the stress of, of of operating and running your own restaurant can definitely make you feel old time time to time. But we're not. We're definitely not that old, you know. No, I guess in the grand scheme of scene, if I was trading stocks all day, I'd be a young whippersnapper. <laughs> right. But uh, as a defensive lineman in the NFL. In five years come up quick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I know that's right. Well, I mean, we only got a couple more minutes here. Um, I, I just uh, really want to talk about you know the future uh, of food with you, and where do you just really see where it's going? And I, I want to pretense this as something that you and I talk about, like with David Chang and him with Korean food, and you see like this this big explosion around the world in high end Korean food. And now mm -hmm. we're starting to see um, this groundswell of high-end uh, soul food or, or what I call uh, Afro cuisine uh, coming about where you're having uh, all this strong African, uh, Caribbean, and mm -hmm. Southern American uh, and South American uh, influence come in. When or, or how long do you see uh, before this becomes nouvelle cuisine on the same way that maybe Korean cuisine now is the, you know, the it cuisine of the world? Oh, man, I think maybe four or five years as, uh, you know, as people are being allowed to speak their truth through the plate, it's just going to snowball and, and it's already started. So, I mean, remember that time in Kentucky, I did the, what did I do? I did red beans and rice and monkfish. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, what a combination too. And it makes sense now, you know, if we, if, if people listen to this entire uh, episode of Soul by Ty Richards, understand that Seattle and Louisiana, that that monkfish, that texture, I mean, that just now, it makes even more sense to me even years later. But, but, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it was, but, you know, the things we were doing, you know, had to get clever with the names, you know, to, you know, to pull it off. 
you know, because you could just, yeah, I'm doing dirty rice and I'm going to charge you $200 a person. You, know, you had right. to do something. Right? You had to use your brain <laughs> and some skills and some techniques to to make that dirty rice be worth a $200 seven-course tasting menu. I mean, just in that, you know, just in that, in that, in that pretense of of being one of the few chefs in the world to achieve AAA five diamond, um, and then you know, of one of forty two, I think it was forty two or forty four at that point in time, in which we were um, running that that restaurant, and then to develop a seven, uh, twelve, and twenty course tasting menu in the middle of Louisville, Kentucky, uh, when you see all that's happening now uh, with. Um, uh, you know, the Breonna Taylor situation and other situations that keep unfolding. It's no wonder how, um, you know, this food that we cook, uh, we have so much passion about because if we didn't have that passion, we'd probably go damn crazy. Exactly. Where, where can they find you on social media, D? Oh, Chef D Nutter on Instagram, uh, Chef Wayne on Twitter, Tweet, Tweet. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you'll find me making pizzas and smoking meat <laughs> down here until uh, I'm gonna open up the patio because the phone's starting to ring off the hook. One uh, some of that some of that old Southern National Fair, so we're gonna open up a few seats on the patio like on Saturday and Sunday. Oh, it sounds good. Um, Melissa and I look forward to get down there soon to see, to see you down in, in Mobile. I, of course, I, <laughs> I know, right? Of course, uh, I can't wait to cook with you uh, and Reggie again. We can't wait to have you back at Lake and Oak, of course. And anytime, of course, you want to come on the show, uh, Soul by Ty Richards, we'd definitely love to hear from you. All righty, man. Thanks for having me. You've been listening see to you in a Soul. Couple weeks. Yeah, see you in a couple weeks for sure. You've been listening to Soul by Todd Richards. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Soul by Todd Richards is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of Food World's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.